Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. On a cold December night in 1916, a group of men hurried through the streets of St. Petersburg, carrying a heavy load wrapped in an expensive rug. They eventually came to a narrow bridge that straddled the Little Neva River. Although most of the river was frozen over, this one spot had a large break in the ice. Anything thrown into the Neva could be expected to be washed out into the Sea of Finland in a matter of days. And so the men dumped their cargo over the edge of the bridge and prayed that they would never have to see it again. But unfortunately, they would not get their wish. The next day, the authorities spotted something floating in the Neva. Using grappling hooks, they were able to latch on to the mysterious object and haul it out of the river. What they had discovered was the frozen corpse of the most notorious man in Russia, the Siberian mystic and known imperial favorite, Grigory Rasputin. Almost immediately, the rumors began to swirl about his death. Who had done the deed? Which of his many enemies had finally finished him off? Was it true that he had survived a gunshot wound to the head? Was it true that he'd freed himself of his restraints underwater and made the sign of the cross before freezing to death? Was it true that his sadistic killers actually cut off his genitals as a grotesque trophy? All that could be said for certain was that the man who had come to represent everything people despised about the teetering czarist regime was dead. But the legend of Rasputin was only just being born. A poet once described his friend as, quote, too weird to live and too rare to die. And to me, that's the perfect summation of Grigory Rasputin. When it comes to Rasputin, it can be hard to decide what was stranger, his life or his death. Both are so clouded by rumor and legend that getting anywhere near the truth can seem like a lost cause. Who was this strange holy man from Siberia? How did he ever manage to worm his way into the confidences of the Tsar of Russia? Did he really possess mystical healing powers? Was Ra-Ra-Rasputin really Russia's greatest love machine? All that and more on today's Our Fake History. Episode 28, Who Killed Rasputin? Part 1. 
Hello, and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major, and this is the podcast where we look at historical myths and try to determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This week, we look at a rare 20th century figure. And believe me, these guys don't come around too often. A quick survey of the archives of our fake history, and you'll notice that the vast majority of our topics deal with the ancient, medieval, and early modern periods of history. In many ways, that probably shouldn't be surprising. The further back you go on the timeline, the easier it is for rumor or mythology to become part of the popularly known story. Basically, the more people you add to your broken telephone game, the more garbled the message becomes in the end. As sources become more plentiful, historical misconceptions simply become rarer. But then there are some figures who just seem born to be legends. There are some people who are so unusual, so mysterious, and so endlessly fascinating that it seems inevitable that they will defy the odds and become a modern myth. In many ways, the ultimate example of this is Grigory Rasputin, the infamous Russian mystic. Even if you know nothing about the man himself, it's pretty likely that you've at least heard the name Rasputin. And it's a name that comes with some serious baggage. And that's because Rasputin is often remembered as one of the early 20th century's greatest villains. He's been portrayed as a scheming puppet master who used mysterious black magic to enthrall the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. He's been accused of being a sex maniac who carried on affairs with several members of the royal family, including the royal princesses and the Tsarina herself. His name is nearly synonymous with evil. So perhaps it's no surprise that Rasputin has been blamed for everything from World War I to the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. But how close to reality is our popular understanding of Grigory Rasputin? Was he really the mad monk of Siberia who managed to survive a poisoning and gunshot wounds to the chest and head before succumbing to the icy cold of the little Neva River? Well, this is what the great English author Colin Wilson had to say about history's treatment of Rasputin in his 1964 book, Rasputin and the Fall of the Romanovs. Quote, no figure in modern history has provoked such a mass of sensational and unreliable literature as Grigory Rasputin. More than a hundred books have been written about him, and not a single one can be accepted as a sober presentation of his personality. There is an enormous amount of material on him, and most of it is full of invention or willful inaccuracy. Rasputin's life, then, is not history. It is the clash of history with subjectivity, end quote. In other words, Gregory Rasputin is our kind of guy. In fact, there is so much mythology to unpack when it comes to Rasputin that this is going to be yet another two-parter. Today, I'm going to look at Grigory Rasputin's rise and try and unpack some of the mythology of his early years. I'm also going to take a close look at his magical healing powers. Then, in part two, I'm going to look at his fall, which culminates in what has to be one of the strangest deaths in all of history. Now, before we get going here, I wanted to throw in a small parental advisory. 
I know there are lots of you out there that like to listen to this show with your kids, so I thought I would give you a heads up that this show is going to have a bit more sexual content than is typical for an episode of Our Fake History. There's just no way to properly tell the story of Rasputin without talking about sex. I'm going to do my best to keep it tasteful, but there's just really no avoiding the topic. So if you're sensitive to that or your kids aren't quite ready for that kind of content, then you may want to skip over this one. But for everyone else out there, let's get into the weird and wonderful life of Grigori Rasputin. Our story begins in the Siberian village of Pokrovskoya, where in 1869, Grigory, the son of Anna Poroshkova and her husband Efim Vilkin Rasputin, was born. Sure enough, there was quite a bit of family lore that surrounded the birth of young Grigory. Rasputin's daughter Maria would later write that on the day of her father's birth, a massive comet streaked through the sky over Pokrovskoya. She claimed that the peasants of the region saw this as an omen that some great event had taken place. Ancient folklore had it that this type of sign could lead to babies being born with iron teeth, dogs appearing with six legs, and snakes falling from the sky. However, Maria's account of her father's birth should be taken with a healthy grain of salt, especially considering that she got his birthday wrong. She claims that her father was born in July of 1873, but we know from the parish register of Pokrovskoya that Grigory was actually born in January of 1869, so with that in mind, we should probably be pretty skeptical of Maria's astronomical data. Now, as you may or may not know, Siberia as a geographic region is massive, The board game Risk had led me to believe that Siberia was in fact a much smaller and more manageable part of the world than it actually is. In fact, Siberia stretches all the way from the Ural Mountains in the west to the Pacific Ocean in the east. Basically, every part of Russia that is technically considered part of the continent of Asia is Siberia. Pokrovskoya is almost dead in the middle of what is today modern Russia. Even in 2016, central Siberia remains one of the most out-of-the-way places on planet Earth, so you can only imagine how remote it would have been in the mid-1800s. At this time, many Western Europeans liked to stereotype Russians as backwards, superstitious peasants who were completely unenlightened and were somehow more Asian than European. Most Russians living in the metropolises of Moscow and St. Petersburg obviously bristled at those stereotypes. But ironically, those were exactly the generalizations they often made about Siberians. When Grigory Rasputin first started making a splash in the aristocratic circles of St. Petersburg, 
he would very cleverly play on these stereotypes to attract followers and make powerful friends. To urban Russians, Siberian peasants just seemed more magical. Now, as you might imagine, given Rasputin's peasant origins, we know very little about his childhood. What we do have are just a few curious anecdotes which possibly could have been made up after the fact to bolster the myth of Rasputin. For instance, we're told that as a boy, Rasputin had a strange connection to horses, and many adults in his village would actually come to him asking advice about the animals. In fact, Rasputin's followers would later claim that his first miracle at the age of 12 involved him psychically determining which of his father's friends had stolen a horse. These strange stories aside, what is clear is that by the time that he was a young man in his late teens, he was already somewhat of a notorious figure in his village. Villagers had apparently given him the derisive nicknames Sniveller and Snotnose, he was known to accost women on the street, grope them, and try to steal kisses, usually saying something gross like, Come here, my lovely mare. This often got him slapped, but occasionally his unwilling victims would give in to his advances. Now, today, this would be considered sexual assault and would be a criminal offense. But in Russia in the 1800s, this kind of behavior just got you labeled a rake or a philanderer. It was seen as sleazy, but unfortunately for the young women of Pokrovskoya, not criminal. The never-ashamed Rasputin would later say that this was, quote, a good life for a peasant, end quote. The turning point in Rasputin's life seems to have taken place in 1897, when the young man would have been 28 years old. A local peasant in his village had been robbed of two horses, and Rasputin and two of his troublemaking friends quickly came under suspicion. Rasputin's two friends were easily found guilty of the crime and were banished permanently from Pokrovskoya. Rasputin, on the other hand, was able to convince the court that because the evidence against him had been less damning, that he should be given a more lenient punishment. He vowed to walk over 300 miles to the monastery of St. Nicholas, where he would pray in front of the bones of St. Simeon as a penance. The court agreed to this, mainly because it got a known troublemaker out of their hair, and many believed that some religious devotions might do the young man some good. And so, Rasputin set off on a journey that would completely transform him spiritually. From then on, he would be a stronic, or a holy wanderer, living simply and traveling from monastery to monastery, looking for communion with God. Rasputin's pilgrimages would take him all around Russia, and even as far as the famous Greek monastery of Mount Athos. As he traveled, his devotion to the Orthodox faith seemed to deepen as did his belief that it was quite possible for the devotee to commune directly with God and gain power from him. It was during these years as a wanderer that Rasputin really became Rasputin, the long-haired, bearded, unkept mystic who seemed to draw power from every strange corner of the Orthodox faith. But wherever Rasputin traveled... Tales of his sexual exploits always traveled with him. However, now many of his partners seem to have been willing female devotees who were attracted to the strange charismatic figure. 
But even in this time of wandering, Rasputin would always return home to Pokrovskoye to help his family work the land. In fact, this would be a constant throughout his entire life. No matter what was going on, he always managed to make time to return to Siberia. Now, it was around this time that Rasputin probably first became acquainted with a certain secret Orthodox sect known as the Klisti. The Klisti were an unusual ecstatic sect that had been blacklisted by the mainstream Orthodox Church in Russia. As a result, they were forced to meet secretly in basements around the Russian countryside. A usual service began with the singing of hymns that had been banned by the church. The singing would go on and on for hours until the members of the congregation were whipped into a delirious kind of ecstasy. Then the leader of the congregation would brandish a whip and start whipping members of his flock. After everyone had gotten a few good lashes, then they would all get naked and the entire service would transform into a massive orgy. The Clisty held the paradoxical belief that the only way to find salvation was to sin. The whippings were meant to mortify the flesh so that the sin of group sex could be undertaken in a way that somehow was religiously pure. And if you're thinking this is kind of wacky, then you're not alone. The Orthodox Church condemned the Clisty as heretics, and most Russians viewed the sect with disgust. As a result, the most common slander that was hurled at Rasputin during his lifetime was that he was a member of this notorious cult. But was Rasputin actually a Klisti? Now, this question might not seem super important to us in 2016, but to turn-of-the-century Russians, it was extremely important. Enemies of Rasputin would go to great ends to try and prove that the mystic was a practicing member of this sect. The best way to publicly destroy Rasputin would have been to definitively tie him to the Klisti. At the height of his influence at court, Rasputin was loudly denounced in the Duma, which was essentially the Russian parliament, as a Klist. That's not to mention the Russian newspapers, who often casually claimed that Rasputin participated in the notorious services. But there was actually no hard evidence that Rasputin ever had anything to do with the Klisti. Historian Joseph Furman believes that we can actually say this with quite a bit of certainty. And by the way, Joseph Furman's 2013 biography of Rasputin has been an indispensable source for these episodes. So if you want to learn more, he's the guy you should go to. You see, after Rasputin had made himself a fixture of the imperial court, he started to be watched very carefully by the Tsar's secret police. He was also examined very closely by agents of the Orthodox Church. And despite this intense scrutiny, both the secret police and the church had to admit that there was no strong proof that he was a member of the band's sect. However, it is important to note that Rasputin does seem to have been influenced by some Klisti beliefs. For instance, back in his hometown of Pokrovskoya, Rasputin was known to lead services in a basement, where the flock would sing some suspiciously off-brand hymns. But there were definitely no whippings, and most importantly, and perhaps most surprisingly, knowing Rasputin, the services did not devolve into wild sex parties. But the one Klisti belief that really did seem to rub off on Rasputin was the idea of sinning in order to find salvation. 
That's basically author Brian Monahan's entire thesis in his 1997 book, Rasputin, The Saint Who Sinned. He argues that the only way to understand Rasputin is to understand the unusual theological underpinnings of all Rasputin's actions. So even though he was probably never a Clisti, the sect still remains an important part of his story. Nevertheless, by the year 1902, the mystics' weird mishmash of orthodox theology seemed to have crystallized. And this happened right around the time he first found his way to St. Petersburg, the imperial capital of the Russian Empire. It was here that Rasputin would really begin his unlikely rise from obscure peasant to one of the most important people in the country. The first step was to make some rich and powerful friends. arrived in St. Petersburg, the city could not have been more ready for him. You see, in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries, spiritualism was at the height of its popularity. All over Europe and North America, people were experimenting with fringe religion and the occult. People were hosting seances, trying to communicate with the dead, visiting psychics, and going to faith healers in numbers that had previously never been seen. Spiritualism was especially popular with the wealthy and the powerful, who were always looking for new and exciting ways to spice up their dinner parties. This was especially true for the bored Russian aristocrats of St. Petersburg. The spiritualism fad was further fueled by the perception that the Russian Orthodox Church was stodgy and out of touch. With this in mind, it should come as no surprise that mystics, psychics, healers, and eccentric holy men often managed to get invitations to dine with some rather high-profile Russians. Basically, if you were a Russian aristocrat throwing a party in 1903, inviting an unkempt wandering holy man who claimed he could see the future was almost necessary if your party was going to be a hit. Now, when Rasputin first got to St. Petersburg, it wasn't like he just immediately launched himself into aristocratic circles. The first place he went, predictably, was the church. It was there that he met Archbishop Theophan of Podlava. Being an archbishop, Theophan was obviously a very respected person in St. Petersburg. And, amazingly, he was rather impressed by Rasputin. He thought that his interpretations of the scriptures were both original and exciting. It's thought that it was he who first introduced Rasputin to a handful of Russian aristocrats, who very quickly became enamored with this wild-eyed Siberian. We're told that many were charmed by what they saw as his rural quirks. They thought that it was fun that he didn't have any manners, that he gave his social superiors goofy nicknames like Fancy Pants or Hot Stuff. They also enjoyed his strange way of speaking. This was basically a rambling stream of consciousness where his philosophical diatribes about the nature of God were often peppered with surprising dirty jokes. In other words, Rasputin was great at a party. 
Until, of course, he got drunk and started groping your wife. But even this was often laughed off as the rough manners of a peasant. And in the early days, Rasputin seemed to not push things too far with his new wealthy friends. This was key because he was essentially living off their generosity and often relied on gifts from his aristocratic admirers to sustain his new swinging city life. After some time, Rasputin eventually attracted a small following of aristocratic women that he suggestively called his little ladies. It was through these high-profile connections that Rasputin secured an invitation to an imperial palace where he was introduced to Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Tsarina Alexandra. Now, Rasputin seems to have made an immediate impression on both the Tsar and the Tsarina, as both of them note the encounter in their diaries. But this is perhaps unsurprising considering the fact that Rasputin was not the first eccentric holy man to become a favorite of the imperial court. In fact, before the arrival of Rasputin, there had been a number of healers and holy fools who had kept company with the royal family. The most prominent among these was a certain Monsieur Philippe. He claimed to have mastered something he called occult healing after he was expelled from medical school in Lyon, France. His most impressive parlor trick was his apparent ability to accurately predict the sex of an unborn fetus using what he called hermetic magic. He also claimed that he had magic hats that would make him and the people in his company invisible which is a pretty awesome thing to claim. But the holy man was sent from the palace after an embarrassing incident where he proclaimed that Alexandra was pregnant with a son in what turned out to be an unusual false pregnancy. It turned out Alexandra was not pregnant at all, even though her body exhibited some signs of pregnancy. This could potentially have been brought on by the French occultist's insistence that she was, in fact, with child. Now, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it helps establish the kind of person Alexandra was and why she was so attracted to Rasputin. She was someone who had a real belief in mystical religion and was easily influenced by charismatic holy men. Now, that's not to say that Alexandra was some weak-willed pushover, on the contrary, by all accounts, she was a very proud, very stubborn woman who was quick to let her opinion be known and had an incredible influence over her husband who took her counsel quite seriously. But despite all that, she seemed to have a weakness for these charming mystics. If Alexandra thought you were the real deal, well, she could be talked into believing she was pregnant. When Rasputin met the royal couple in late 1905, it had been a good two years since Monsieur Philippe had been dismissed. The couple had gone without the guidance of a personal mystic for quite some time, and the events of their life in the intervening years had made them only more open to holy men claiming miraculous healing powers. You see, what most members of the court didn't know was that the Russian royals were hiding a potentially disastrous secret. Alexei the heir to the throne, was a hemophiliac. This is the genetic disease that was actually quite common among European royalty of this period. Those suffering from hemophilia lack a protein in their blood that keeps their blood from properly clotting. That means if you sustain an injury, you might just bleed and bleed and bleed until you die. 
For the prince, this often manifested as painful swelling brought on by internal bleeding, and this could go on for days or even weeks. This meant that the prince was incredibly fragile and often found himself on death's door. This was such a secret because if it got out that the heir to the throne was suffering from a terrible genetic disease, it could deeply undermine the already shaky czarist regime. In 1905, Nicholas and Alexandra were looking for a miracle. And Rasputin? Well, he was a miracle worker. That brings us to one of the more incredible elements of the Rasputin story, his ability to heal the young Prince Alexei. You see, there are so many things about Rasputin that just seem to scream charlatan. Everything from his horny horse thief origins, his love of expensive gifts, his sexual escapades, which we've barely scratched the surface of, and especially the way he bragged about his powerful friends, it all makes his penitent holy man act seem like a bit of a fraud. His whole fool for God shtick can seem like a calculated play to either scam people out of money, get in their pants, or play puppet master. But then there's the whole issue of Rasputin's incredible healing powers. You see, it would be so much easier to write Rasputin off as a clever fraud if it wasn't for this one important fact. Whatever he did to young Alexei, it worked. Anytime Rasputin sat with the prince and worked his healing magic, the little guy always seemed to make a recovery. And it wasn't like he did this once or twice. Rasputin acted as Alexei's healer for nearly 10 years, starting in 1906 when the boy would have only been two years old. His repeated success with Alexei's hemophilia is easily the number one reason why he was so thoroughly embraced by the Romanovs. And it's also why he was so fiercely protected by the Tsarina in the years to come. For all their faults, the Romanovs were nothing if not devoted parents. The letters between Nicholas and Alexandra are so sincere and so loving, it's hard not to have some sympathy for these people. Their diaries also show a real doting affection for their children. This is especially noteworthy for an era when children, even royal children, were generally seen as below consideration. The Romanovs, on the other hand, were deeply concerned with the well-being of their kids. Alexei's illness tormented both Alexandra and Nicholas, doubly so because it needed to be kept a secret. The Tsar and Tsarina were often expected to be charming hosts at royal occasions while their son was secretly suffering in some distant wing of the palace. For a group of people already given to melancholy and depression, this must have been unbearable. 
honestly, the more I learn about Tsar Nicholas II and his family, the more I think that they are just the saddest group of people I've ever heard of. The Tsar apparently never even wanted the top job. When he discovered he was going to be elevated to the throne, he apparently cried to his cousin, quote, What am I going to do? I'm not prepared to be a Tsar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. End quote. And man, would he really go on to prove himself right. The poor guy bumbled his way from one personal tragedy and political disaster to the next, till eventually he was shot in a basement. It's a real bummer. But if Nicholas had any happy days in his life, then they would have been those days that he saw his son up and walking after bouncing back from one of his hemophilic attacks. Most of those times, it was Rasputin who had somehow managed to bring his son back from the brink. So this begs the question, how did he do it? Well, as you might expect, there are a number of theories that seek to explain Rasputin's strange gift. Many of Rasputin's contemporaries were deeply suspicious of his miraculous healing powers, and more than one tried to discredit him. The Romanov's court physician, Botkin, had a particular distaste for the man he saw as a greasy peasant. He claimed that Rasputin hypnotized the young prince, and through hypnotic suggestion was able to get him to ignore the pain. Now, this theory isn't completely out of the question, especially considering that we know that Rasputin studied hypnotism. Rasputin corresponded with at least one well-known mesmerist and spent time with the master of hypnosis, Gerasim Papandato. This also fits with almost every description of Rasputin, which always note his piercing hypnotic eyes and his habit of staring deeply into the face of whoever he was talking to. However, the timeline simply does not work for this theory. Rasputin only started studying hypnotism in 1913 at the earliest. He first started healing Alexei in 1906, well before he became interested in the practice. It's also important to note that when he first started to heal Alexei, the boy was only two years old, which many believe would have made him too young to have been affected by hypnotic suggestion. On top of that, it's important to note that no one claims to have ever seen Rasputin hypnotize the prince. This includes the court physicians, who all despised Rasputin, who were often present when he worked his magic. So, all in all, the hypnotism theory doesn't seem particularly compelling. It's also been alleged that Rasputin was able to control the prince's health by secretly drugging the boy. The theory goes that with the help of a lady-in-waiting, Rasputin used a certain unnamed Tibetan healing powder to keep the prince in good health. If he got worried that the Tsarina was getting tired of him, he would stop giving the boy the secret medicine, and sure enough, Alexei would suffer an attack. When he wanted to play the hero, Rasputin would simply have the drugs slipped back into the boy's food or water. Now, this theory was originally put forward by one of Rasputin's assassins, and even at the time, it was regarded with some serious suspicion. You see, the logic of it just doesn't line up. First of all, what are these mystery powders that can control hemophilia? They don't really seem to exist. 
On top of that, all of Alexi's hemophilic episodes were brought on by some sort of injury, a fall, a scrape, a bumpy carriage ride, or something of that sort always came before the ensuing hemophilic trauma. Because that's how hemophilia works. You don't just start hurting out of nowhere. You need to injure yourself, and then you deal with the repercussions of blood that won't clot. I feel like this theory only really got traction because people in the early 20th century didn't fully understand what hemophilia was. So I think that one can be safely dismissed. Next, there's the theory that Rasputin's secret weapon was one of the most generic drugs you can think of. Aspirin. Or more precisely, the lack of aspirin. Everyone's favorite over-the-counter painkiller was first invented in 1899, and in its early days, it was regarded as a bit of a wonder drug by the medical establishment. Almost everything was treated with aspirin, and undoubtedly, a young boy in immense pain would have surely been given the drug. However, as many of you know, one of aspirin's main side effects is that it thins the blood. That's actually why it can help someone who's having a heart attack. The thinner blood will more easily pass through a clogged artery. But if you're a hemophiliac, a blood thinner is the exact opposite of what you need. When Rasputin was brought in to heal Alexei, he would usually instruct the doctors to stop whatever treatment they were using. This would have included regular doses of aspirin. With the aspirin out of his system, the prince's body would finally get a fighting chance to heal itself. This theory also helps to explain a particularly curious incident when Rasputin was seemingly able to heal Alexei by telegram. At the time, Rasputin had briefly fallen out of favor with the royal family after he was photographed naked surrounded by prostitutes, but we'll get to that story later. This scandal had been too much even for the surprisingly tolerant Tsar who sent Rasputin packing back to Pokrovskoya. But it was during this time that Alexei suffered one of his most traumatic hemophilic episodes. The pain was so excruciating that everyone, including the prince himself, thought that the end was near. The orthodox last rites were even given to the bedridden child. In a moment of desperation, the Tsarina reached out to the disgraced Rasputin, begging him to help. Historian Joseph Furman tells us that Rasputin responded with a simple two-sentence cable that read, quote, The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. End quote. We're then told that Alexei's condition started to improve almost immediately. Within a week, the episode had completely ended and the brutal swelling that he had endured had disappeared. Now, if you favor the aspirin theory, this could have been because of Rasputin's direction to not allow the doctors to bother Alexei. This might have meant that they were no longer permitted to give him aspirin, and as a result, he was able to heal himself. Now, this explanation really appeals to my scientific mind. And I also kind of like the idea that Alexei's healing occurred because of something that was completely unintentional on Rasputin's part. Simpsons fans might know this phenomenon as pulling a homer. However, this theory still doesn't explain all of Rasputin's miraculous healings. More than one court physician testified under oath that Rasputin was often able to cause near instantaneous relief for the child when he came in for healing sessions. 
So that doesn't fit with the aspirin explanation, as it takes the drug at least a few hours to wear off. In many cases, it seems as though the physicians continued to treat Alexei even while Rasputin was employing his faith healing techniques. So, in other words, it's a good theory, but it still leaves us with a number of unanswered questions. But perhaps my favorite theory is the one toyed with by historian Joseph Furman. He suggests that Rasputin may have mastered the ancient peasant art known as blood stilling. He explains that throughout Europe, there were recorded instances of peasants being able to heal the wounds of horses and stop bleeding when others could not. In England, people with this ability were actually called horse whisperers. And if that Robert Redford movie had actually been about a dude with magical blood powers, I may have actually seen it. Apparently, these blood stillers were well known in Russia, and there were many stories of peasants healing horses by massaging their wounds and mumbling indecipherable words. Furman also shares an anecdote about a Russian aristocrat who nearly cut his foot off chopping wood. Apparently, he sent one of his servants to fetch him a peasant who was a known blood stiller. When the man arrived, he was able to stop the bleeding using the same mystical technique. So, if we believe these stories, perhaps Rasputin was one of these mysterious blood stillers. His connection to horses in his early years could mean that he may have been taught this obscure healing art by others in his village. Now, this theory is fun, but obviously it has a lot of issues. So little is known about blood stilling that it pretty much qualifies as folklore. All the evidence of it is purely anecdotal, and you kind of get the feeling that many of these stories were exaggerated. There's also no proof that Rasputin ever learned this skill or did anything that resembled it in his healing sessions. All he seemed to do was stand close to Alexei and pray. So, it may have been very simple. Rasputin was a calming, assuring presence who brought a sense of calm to both the boy and his panicking mother. By calming the child, he was more able to heal. Or, maybe Rasputin had real mystical powers. Depending on your religious beliefs, you might be comfortable with the idea that God was working through this strange Russian peasant. This was certainly the conclusion that was reached by the Tsarina. And in the end, it was the Tsarina's opinion that mattered the most. As Rasputin proved time and time again that he could alleviate the symptoms of hemophilia, he became more and more a part of the imperial family. They needed him, and he knew it. But, as you might imagine, not everyone in the capital was as enamored with Rasputin as the Tsarina. When you consider that most people at the time didn't know about Alexei's hemophilia, and by extension, Rasputin's healing sessions, Rasputin's newfound favor from the imperial court must have seemed particularly strange. What could they have possibly seen in him? And because inquiring minds need to know, no shortage of salacious rumors started to circulate around the capital. Perhaps this dark magician had cast a spell on the Romanovs, or perhaps he had made a cuckold of the Tsar, and had taken Alexandra as a lover. And rumors like that? Huh. Well, they can get a man killed. 
Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will wrap up our look at Rasputin. And as always, guys, the story gets crazier, so you're really going to want to tune in for that. Before we go this week, I need to make an important correction from our last episode. So in episode number 27, uh, Did the Chinese Beat Columbus to the New World? Part 2. I got talking about something called the Piri Res map. And I brought up that a lot of the ancient aliens crowd really likes this map because they think it provides proof of uh, extraterrestrial interference in human civilization. And when I was talking about that, I dropped the name Graham Hancock as one of the people that's put forward this theory. That is not exactly correct. It's people like Eric Von Daniken who believe that ancient aliens came to Earth and the Puri Res map is proof of that. Graham Hancock, on the other hand, believes that the Puri Res map is proof that there was a super ancient advanced human society which may have been the basis for the Atlantis myth. So I'm sorry I got these guys confused. The uh, the Atlantis people, the sort of super ancient advanced human civilization people and the ancient aliens people sometimes mesh together in my head. But as many of you pointed out to me, they are not the same and should not be conflated. And uh, you know what? Hey, I'm a stickler for accuracy. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, I'm always ready to admit when I've made a flub. Um, And also what this has done is made me realize that I should probably do a proper Graham Hancock episode. His theories are unique and kind of interesting, so I think it's worth diving into for a future episode of Our Fake History. While you're waiting for those future episodes, may I suggest going to OurFakeHistory.com where you can explore our archive. My man Frank Fiorentino has been creating all sorts of great art for all the back episodes, and there's a bunch of new art up on the website right now, so you should really go check that out. While you're there, maybe click on the link that says buy extra episodes and download the two extra episodes that are up for sale. Thanks to everyone that's uh, started downloading those since I put them up again. Uh, It's a great way to support the show and you get uh, some extra content uh, out of it. So it's very cool. Uh, You can also donate to the show. Just click on the donate to OFH button on the website and uh, throw a few dollars into the tip jar. Another completely free way to support the podcast is to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app that you use that also has a rating function. A lot of them don't have ratings functions. So if you're using one that doesn't have a ratings function, go to iTunes and write a review there. They really, really help. And thanks to everyone that's already done that. Uh, You can get in touch with me in the meantime at ourfakehistory at gmail.com and you can also follow along on Twitter at ourfakehistory as always the theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church you can check out Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com and all the other music that you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me my name is Sebastian Major and remember just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real (laughs) 